Several years ago, Robert Turner wrote a short article, and that article went something like this. We're finally convinced that personal work, that teaching one-on-one -on -one is the best way to reach our neighbors and to help build the church up. So we call on our friendly neighborhood barber who, who lives just down the street, and the conversation goes something like this. Well, hello. Glad to see you, Reverend. I've been meaning to, to say hello to you and come by, but, but we cut him off. Now, if you'd read your Bible, you'd know that Holy and Reverend belong to God, Psalm 111 and verse 9. And we, be, we shouldn't be giving flattering titles to any man. He says, well, I'm sorry, Pastor. I, I just meant, Pastor? What do you mean, Pastor? I'm not a pastor. Don't you know the pastors are the shepherds of the flock and they're the overseers? I'm just a soul-loving preacher trying to spread the gospel to the lost and dying world. Well, preacher, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean any harm. You see, in our church, our church, you, you people talk like you've got a church and the Lord doesn't have one. Don't you know that the churches of men are going to all be rooted up? And if he throws us out of his house... We can always then go and report at the personal work meeting how we really told him the truth and, and all of our uh, problems that we had and persecution that we had in trying to teach the gospel. Well, civil courtesy in some of these situations would go a long way, wouldn't it? And you couple that with a little do unto others as, and it would help a lot. And I can't help but think of Colossians, the fourth chapter, in verses 5 and 6 where Paul tells the Colossian brethren to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And certainly that's the way we need to treat people who are not Christians, who are not believers. And yet when we couple that with passages like that golden rule and in Matthew the seventh chapter, we, we've rephrased it, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, but that really reads, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. When we put those together, we see that it does apply to our friends and neighbors who may not be Christians, but it also applies to dealing with one another as brethren. So what I want to do is look at this topic tonight, grace, seasoned with salt, or having your speech with grace, seasoned with salt. And I must have left that blue one up here, and I'm partial to that one, because it worked pretty well this morning. Exactly does it mean to have your speech with grace seasoned with salt? Well, that may present some problems for us. After all, when we go to Scripture, we can see a lot of different techniques being used, both, both with brethren and with those. And I don't know what's going on here. Let me lower that a little bit. Maybe that's better. But we see different techniques being used with brethren and, and those who are uh, unbelievers as well. Who has, I passed out some passages earlier tonight. Who has Acts the 18th chapter, verses 24 through 26? Can you read that, please? Uh, the way of God will act 
Thank you. Okay, you have a situation here where Apollos knows a lot about the Scripture. He's an eloquent man, and yet there's something that's missing. He, know, he knows only about the baptism of John. And so through that ignorance, he's preaching only the baptism of John, apparently. And as he's doing that, Aquila and Priscilla are there. And they do what with him? It says they pull him aside. And one of the ways I want to suggest to you that we can have speech that's with grace, seasoned with salt, one of the ways that we can deal with people is we can pull them aside and apparently teach privately. Now, sometimes maybe we make the mistake, I'm not sure if we do or not, of, of putting too much emphasis on this pulling aside. And, and by that, what I mean is, I don't know exactly how this occurred. I'm not so sure that they waited until Apollos was finished with this whole lesson or whatever he was teaching about, and then after it was all said and done, then they pulled him aside and tried to teach him. They may have stopped him in the middle of it and said, Apollos, we need to address some things here before you... Uh, cause too much uh, problem with people misunderstanding what you're saying. But it does appear that they pulled him aside and, and taught him uh, privately. Well, what about Galatians, the second chapter, verses 11 through 14? Who has that one? What's happening here? Peter, we see, is playing the hypocrite and the coward on this occasion because he was willing to eat with Jews at first, but then when certain Jews, or I'm sorry, he was willing to eat with Gentiles at first, but then when certain ones came from the Jews, he withdrew himself from those Gentiles. And Paul, what to say he did? He withstood him to the face before everyone. Now, certainly we would all agree, oh, well, pulling, pulling all the Paulus aside, that was an appropriate thing to do, and that certainly would have been speech with grace, seasoned with salt. What do we think about this one then? You mean to tell me that you think that was okay for Paul to publicly reprimand Peter? After all, Peter's a leader in the church, and that would have embarrassed him. It would have embarrassed anybody, I suppose, having a public reprimand like this. Well, let's go on before we comment too much farther on that and uh, look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 through 18. Who has that one? All right, in similar fashion then, we have Paul writing about Hymenaeus and Philetus, and he warned against them. And I'm going to put here that it's in a public fashion, and that he's writing about them, putting their names in black and white for everybody to see. 
Well, maybe we have some problems with that one, too, after all. Isn't that somewhat embarrassing? Should we be calling people out by name like that? What about 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 verses 22 through 26, later on in that chapter? Now, there's a phrase in there, when we're trying to deal with other people, we need to try to correct them in humility. Now, this one goes along with our idea, I guess, as humans, of having speech with grace that's seasoned with salt. After all, correcting in humility, what's that all about? It's not about winning the argument. When we try to correct somebody in humility, first of all, as Paul tells the Galatians, we're considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted, obviously, and we're trying to think about what their good is, what their best, what would be best for this person that we're trying to correct. And so it's not all about winning the argument. It's not about being right, although we, we need to be right, but we're not trying to just be right and win the argument. We're trying to help somebody get to heaven. And I want to suggest to you that's really the key to every one of these. When somebody gets pulled aside, now in the case of Apollos, when you think about it, Apollos apparently didn't know any better about what he was teaching. And so it was appropriate on that occasion for Aquila and Priscilla to pull him aside and teach him more accurately the ways of God, specifically baptism beyond the baptism of John. The public reprimand, though, that one bothers us a little bit, perhaps, when we think of it on the surface. Uh, on the surface. Nevertheless, what did Peter need on this occasion? He needed to be corrected. And apparently he needed to be corrected in a way that he might not ever do such a thing again. But so that other people who might have followed after Peter's example, and I think that's the key to this, people, Peter being a leader in the church, if he's publicly reprimanded, then people see the error, Peter can see the error, and it's going to help people be corrected. Paul didn't do this to put Peter on the spot, I don't believe. I believe he did this to help Peter and to help those who were round about. We're trying to help people get to heaven, after all. And sometimes being silent doesn't help people get to heaven, does it? Or pulling people aside and not correcting the situation before everybody so that everybody can know what the truth is. That doesn't always help. Well, the same thing goes with being publicly warned against. Uh, we're trying to help people. Now, maybe it was too late for Hymenaeus and Philetus in the sense that they're not willing to repent. But other people needed to understand something about these men and that they needed to, to beware of them. And so I believe correcting in humility is really the key to the whole thing. I apologize for my sloppy writing there. I don't have that, that good of a script, I guess, tonight, if ever. But there is one other case that I want to look at, and this one may bother us more than anything. Acts, the 15th chapter, verses 36 through 41. This one may be our biggest challenge in, in understanding how to deal with one another. Thank you. 
All right, now this one bothers us a little bit more, perhaps, because here we have brethren who decide to part company. Paul and Barnabas had gone on the first missionary journey together. They decide that it would be appropriate for them to go back and visit the churches that they've established on the first journey and visit the brethren there and help encourage them. But what happened on the first journey? We remember that John Mark went along. And partway through the journey, very early on in it, John Mark turned back. Now, we don't know the reason that John turned back, that Mark turned back. It might have been a very good reason. We don't know that sin was involved. It just may have been a case where he's distracted by things. And we know when we think of Paul, Paul was a very intense fellow, wasn't he? And distractions weren't a part of his work. And so he felt like it was not appropriate to bring John Mark the second time. After all, he might have those same distractions. That might have been all there was to it. Now, I think later on we see, as Paul writes to Timothy, that Paul felt that John Mark could be useful in his work. He writes that. And so this wasn't necessarily a permanent attitude that Paul had against John Mark, but he felt like it just wasn't appropriate to take him on the second journey because he might be distracted. Barnabas felt like it was. And the contention between the two of them got so sharp that they ended up going two different directions, didn't they? Well, what do we do with that one then? Is that any way for brethren to treat one another? And we've got to be very careful. Listen carefully to me here. I'm not up here saying that brethren need to be dividing, okay? I'm saying there is a time and a place that maybe this is the best thing and maybe sin's not involved because what did God do on this occasion? Well, the gospel was preached by, by Barnabas and John Mark in one place. And the gospel was preached by Paul and Silas in another place. As long as sin wasn't involved, isn't that a better thing than just having the gospel preached on one route? I think so. God can use a situation that maybe we don't see the full picture, but God can use it for His good. And so we have a situation here where brethren parted company. Well, what do we get from all these other than, and I want us to remember number four in particular because I really think that's the key to the whole thing when we try to deal with our brethren and with those uh, who may not be Christians, that we need to try to help them get to heaven. Well, who has Ecclesiastes, the third chapter? Verses one through eight.
There's a time for every purpose under heaven, verse 1 says. And as we consider all these things, some of them it may not make sense to us at first. I believe Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 1 and following aptly applies to what we're talking about here. There's a time and a place for every one of these approaches. There's a time and a place to pull somebody aside, especially in the case of Apollos who obviously did not know better about what he was preaching. There's a time and a place to have that public, public reprimand. Peter did know better. There's a time and a place to warn, have a public warning against certain individuals. There's always a time and a place for correcting in humility. And there may be a time and a place when parting company is the best thing, as long as sin is not involved. Again, I want to emphasize that. But sometimes we can cover more ground by going different directions. Well, maybe that doesn't help us then, because I'm not sure I'm qualified to tell you exactly when in life, every, when in every situation in life, you should use each one of these things. But it's important to realize there is that time, and I think some of it we're going to have to pray to God for wisdom in dealing with people. We're going to have to pray to God for good judgment, and we're going to maybe have to uh, have some experience and learn from our mistakes, perhaps, and, and learn as we get older. And so there's not an exact formula I have. Now, that said, you may be going, well, why do we even talk about this? Well, we've got a gospel meeting coming up. And I like what Wiley said in the class this morning. He asked us, do we think that we can turn, was it, we can turn Franklin upside down? Is that something like that? How many of us think that we can turn the, the town of Franklin and the Middle Tennessee area upside down if we can be, if we will be, fully what God wants us to be? I think we can. And that's exciting, because when you get a church that's actively doing what God wants it to do, that's an exciting place to be. On the other hand, if you find a church where nobody's doing anything, that's not an exciting place to be. You know, that old status quo that we talk about sometimes, there's a lot of power in status quo. If something's sitting still, it's going to tend to sit still, isn't it? That's one of Newton's laws of physics, if not. But if there's something that's in motion it's going to tend to stay in motion unless there's some force that stops it. And so if you're part of an exciting situation, then that catches on and it spreads like wildfire. And I believe we can do that in the Middle Tennessee area. We can be a shining light, what God wants us to be. Well, all that said, let's look at one example that I consider just a perfect example on how to deal with people. And maybe this will help us as we try to spread the gospel and invite the others to our upcoming meeting and then spread the gospel and have studies with our friends and neighbors. Turn over to John, the fourth chapter. The master teacher gave us this perfect example. And there's so much that we can learn from it. In John, the fourth chapter... Beginning with verse 5. So he, this is talking about Jesus, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, Ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, let me stop right there. You know, I told a couple of you that uh, I wanted to hurry up and get my lessons over with. That way, Edwin, he won't preach about what I'm going to preach about, and then I won't have to find something different later on. 
And uh, he got frittered on this point last week a little bit. But one of the things that Jesus did to show us that perfect example is that he spoke to this Samaritan woman in the first place. He did not prejudge. Sometimes we play a game, don't we? Well, I believe old Jimmy Frazier, you know, I believe he'll listen to the gospel. I like him. Kurt, he's from Illinois. I don't believe I'm going to bother teaching him. Now, Charles, I believe he'll listen. James isn't here tonight, is he? James, he's a government walker. He's not going to listen. Of course, I'm being funny here. I think everybody here wants to listen. But we pick out people that we think will listen, and that's okay for a starting place. You've got to start somewhere, and there's no, no place to start like somebody who you think might listen. But sometimes we just automatically eliminate some other people. And that's not what Jesus did. He was willing to speak to this Samaritan woman in the first place. He didn't just decide that she wouldn't listen because she's a Samaritan. And he also knew something else about her that we're going to see in a few more verses that may not have been a good situation. And we might have been tempted to think, well, now she's in a bad situation in life. I don't think she's going to listen. Jesus didn't do that, did he? He didn't prejudge the situation. Do any of you know Sean Sullivan? Sean preaches in the last account I had. I don't know him well, but the last account I had, he preaches in Norwalk, Ohio, or he did. Uh, and the church that I used to be a part of supported Sean uh, partially. And so I got to hear him uh, every once in a while come over and, and present lessons. And Sean's a very enthusiastic personal worker. And he was telling about uh, an account one time about talking with his neighbor. He had moved to the area, I don't know if this was when he was in Indiana or in Norwalk, but it doesn't matter. He saw his neighbor outside on Sunday mornings as he was getting ready to go to church, as I understand it, or to services. He would, he would see this neighbor out. And this neighbor was a rough-looking guy. I mean, he was, had, he was a greasy, liked to work on, on cars and just get real dirty and long hair and tattoos everywhere. And we might be tempted to say, well, you know, he doesn't really care about the gospel. But Sean decided he was going to go talk to him anyway. And so he went up to him and started talking about cars because Sean had a Mustang and he liked cars. And, and so that was the intro to start talking to him. He asked him his name and, and the fellow said, well, my, my name's Paul. And Sean said, sure enough, it was. He had it written on his arm, one of the tattoos. And, and this fellow, you know, he had earrings all all in his ears, and, and they even missed one and got one right through his eye there. But you know what happened? Through that initial contact, Sean started studying with this fellow. And the last account I had, and this is several years ago, but the last account I had, this fellow had obeyed the gospel and was a faithful child of God. Don't dismiss people just because you think that they wouldn't accept the gospel based on what they look like. Some people even though they may not look like it, are searching for something that's better than what this life has to offer. And that's one example of that very thing. Jesus showed us that. He didn't prejudge this uh, Samaritan woman. Now, notice her response here. When I read a minute ago, you know, she responds, how is it that you being a Jew? I'm not so sure the voice inflection came out that way. Now, we know that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, that, that Jews didn't like Samaritans. 
But I believe when we look at the history of this, that works both ways. When you consider the history behind the Samaritan people and how in 2 Kings, the 17th chapter, we see they were transplants. They weren't native to the land. The Assyrian captivity caused them to, you know, the Assyrians took the northern kingdom of Israel away, most of them, and transplanted people from elsewhere, perhaps some Assyrians as well, into the region. Now, these people learned some things about the law of Moses. We won't get into all the reasons why tonight, but they learned the law of Moses. But they weren't, they weren't Jews, and they didn't like one another. Jews and Samaritans never liked one another. When you look at Nehemiah, the second chapter, Sanballat the Horonite, when we trace the Horonites back to their lineage, we see they're of the same heritage of the Samaritans. And in other words, Sanballat was basically a Samaritan. And remember, when they were trying to rebuild the wall, Sanballat did everything he could to get in the way of that. All right, that continued on, that, that kind of a relationship. So when Jesus says, how is it that you, being a Jew... You know, I'm not so sure that it wasn't. How is it that you, being a Jew, are talking to me, a Samaritan? Why do you want to talk to me for? I tend to believe that might have been the way that it was asked. And especially when you look at some of the other comments she makes along the way. Now, it's important to note that because Jesus didn't get sidetracked with a possible insult. How many of us would be tempted if somebody were to say, well, you old Camelite Church of Christ people, I don't want to listen to you, and then we want to take it. Well, well, we're on the defensive now. We want to take issue with this. Sometimes it's better to continue on with the purpose that we have in mind than not try to take issue with everything along the way. Jesus didn't get sidetracked. He continued on. Let's continue on, too. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Instead of getting sidetracked, what did he do? He steered the conversation toward the spiritual. We can do the same thing with our friends and neighbors. With a little practice, it might not come easy at first, but you'd be surprised when you talk about the weather or cars or whatever, how you can steer a conversation toward the spiritual. I mean, if nothing else, we just say, hey, we want to come to services sometime, that wouldn't hurt either. But Jesus steers the conversation toward the spiritual rather than trying to take issue with an insult this woman might have presented to him. That, oh, you're an old Jew. Well, let's read on, verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have come to draw, uh, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now, there's one of two things happening here. There's either a gross misunderstanding of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this living water, and I believe there's probably a misunderstanding no matter what, but either it's just a gross misunderstanding or she's being sarcastic. To me, it seems like it's got to be one of those two. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who are you making yourself out to be? Now, that might have very well been the attitude that she was presenting to Jesus. He steers the conversation toward the spiritual, but she's not necessarily receptive yet, is she? 
Now, what would we be tempted to do if we were a good Jew in this land today and some Samaritan had just called Jacob our father? Jacob's not your father. What are you talking about? Are you some kind of nut? You Samaritans, you're not really Jews. You can't call Jacob your father. You're transplants in the land. And when you think about it, the very best case scenario is that this was a mixed breed, if you'll allow me to use that, that term, where there might have been some Jewish blood, but there's a high likelihood there was no Jewish blood in this, in this woman. And so she cannot truthfully say that Jacob is her father, even though she's learned the law of Moses and her, her uh, family has probably learned the law of Moses over the years. And a good Jew of the day would have probably taken up issue with that, wouldn't they? No, no, we've got to set this straight. Now, you said something that's not right there. You said something wrong. We've got to talk about this. We've got to address this situation. Did Jesus do that? No, he kept on. He kept on making his spiritual application. Look at verses 13 through 15. Well, let, me, let me stop there for a minute before I go to 13 through 15. When we're studying with people, I want to make it clear, I'm not trying to suggest that we condone sin, or that we condone something that's wrong. But what I am trying to suggest is sometimes it's better to stick with the purpose that we've got in the study and not get sidetracked on every little thing that they say that's wrong. I'll tell you something that happened several years ago when I was uh, up in, this was a study that I was having in Woodbridge, Virginia. And there was a fellow there who was maintaining that belief is all that you need to do to be saved. And he would go to Romans, the 10th chapter, and verse 13, you know, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's one of uh, the people who believe that. That's one of their favorite passages. Well, you know what the next verse says? See, he was trying to equate calling on the name of the Lord with belief. But if you look in verse 14 of the same passage, it says, How shall you call on him whom you have not believed? Or how shall he call on him whom he has not believed? So belief and calling on the name of the Lord are not one and the same thing. And he needed to understand that. So, I was gonna, so he was making this case about reading Romans 10, 13, this plain as day. And I said, well, let's just read verse 14. And I, knew, I used the New American Standard Translation at the time. And so I said, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation only because I wanted them to know if there were some wording differences or where I was reading from. It really made no difference other than that. But he said, whoa, stop right there. There's your problem. Now, I've made a lot of mistakes over the years. I think I did the right thing on, on this occasion. You know what I did? I said, well, give me your Bible then. He used the King James Version almost exclusively. Give me the King James Version. Because I didn't care what trans... I knew that the King James Version said pretty much the same thing that I, wanted, that I thought it said in the American Standard Translation, the New American Standard. And so it didn't matter to me. The point was not to have a discussion about whether the New American Standard Translation is an acceptable translation or not. That can wait for another time. We were talking about something a little bit more serious at the time, and we didn't get sidetracked on that issue. We stayed on the spiritual conversation. And that's something that we would do well to learn and to learn how to master that. And I think that's what Jesus showed us how to do here, not take issue with everything that the person says that's wrong. That doesn't mean you condone it. It means you stick with the topic at hand and maybe you address those other things later on. All right, now verses 13 through 15. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Now let's stop for a second. Jesus continues on with the spiritual application here in spite of either her misunderstandings or her sarcasm or a little bit of both. He doesn't get agitated over her misunderstandings. He's very patient with her. He continues making these points. And he keeps laying out the facts for her, the truth of the matter, laying out the facts. This is very important for us when we're trying to work with people. Stay with the facts. And in this case, what I mean by that is stay with the Scripture. Let the Scripture do the talking. That's how it applies to us. Let the Scripture talk. Let the Scripture apply the pressure. And that way, it's a little bit easier for them to accept, isn't it? That doesn't mean they're going to accept it all the time. But it's a little bit easier if you take your own personality out of it as much as possible. And if it doesn't become a personal thing. Is anybody here from West Virginia besides Judy? I know Judy is. I'm going to pick on West Virginia for a second. If I'm going to Judy and I'm trying to convince her that West Virginia is not the best state to live in, how is she going to respond better? Now, I might go up to her and I, I might have some logical things to say about that, sticking with the facts like I'm talking about. Well, Judy, you know, the economy is not as good in West Virginia as maybe some other states. I think that's a fact. It hasn't been historically. Well, another thing is that workmen's comp laws have not historically been as good in West Virginia if you're uh, talking from the, the vantage point of a, a business owner. And so that's not as good. And maybe there's some other reasons. Perhaps she can counter with, you know, well, it's got mountains, it's beautiful. And I'm not trying to suggest there aren't counter arguments to be made. But it's going to come across a little better if I'm trying to give her factual information about the pros and cons of living in West Virginia. Now, I'll tell you, West Virginia has a lot of stereotypes about it. We lived there for several years, and so I can, I'm allowed to do this. Not everybody can. But uh, there are a lot of stereotypes about West Virginia. If I start in on the stereotypes, how is she going to respond to that? You know, there's a, there's a joke that I heard when I first went to West Virginia that what's 200 feet long with 200 legs, 200 eyes, and two green teeth. And that's the cotton candy line at the Preston County Buckwheat Festival. And so there were stereotypes that are associated with, uh, with West Virginia. And so if I tell Judy, if I'm not basing everything on fact, and I go and I say, well, I wouldn't live in West Virginia. You don't want to live with there, all those greasy-haired people that don't have any teeth, and they're hillbillies, and how's she going to react to that? I'm not really dealing with a fact, am I? I'm dealing with a stereotype that's just based upon people having fun or whatever. Who knows where some of the stereotypes come from? And they may be a little bit factual at times. I'm not saying that's the case in West Virginia. With it for now on that. But that's what Jesus did. He continued to lay out the Scripture and, and the facts of the matter. And if we'll lay out the Scripture before the people, then they can apply their own pressure. You know, this book's not that difficult to understand. There are a few passages that are a little harder. But for the most part, we can understand what this book says. And people who we study with can understand it as well. 
So as much as we can take ourselves out of the equation and let God's Word be the talking, we need to do that. All right, well, let's look at verses 16 through 18 then. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may... I just read that, didn't I? Oh, no, I didn't. Jesus said to him, Go, uh, go call your husbands and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Now again, Jesus is pointing out the facts. And it's worth noting that he doesn't get sidetracked with all the husbands that she might have had. Now we don't know all the information about these husbands, but we do know one thing, that the man she's living with now is not her husband. But he didn't get sidetracked with that. She knew when he said this, you know, the next verse she says, I, I perceive you're a prophet, sir. I perceive that you are a prophet. You know some things here. And she can apply her own pressure. Now, that's not to say that we condone sin or we let her stay in this state forever if she's in a sinful situation. What it is saying is that there was something more important at hand right now. Jesus was trying to get a message across to her, and she needed to know that before she could start straightening out all the little things in her life that were wrong. So he continues to point out the facts, and he lets her apply her own pressure. And we can do that, too, by quoting Scripture and using that, taking ourselves out of the equation. All right, verses 20 through 26. Our fathers worshipped on, uh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that the Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And let me pause there. She's using the word Jews here, but that's really italicized, so it completes the thought. But that's not the, uh, that's not the actual translation of what she said. All right, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He's been building a case to stay on his main point. He's tried to stay on his main point. He's been building the case up to this point, and now he's arrived at his main point, I believe. I'm the Christ. He started it out by saying, if you knew who it was you were talking to, you would have asked him for living water. So it was obvious that he had an intention of showing her that he was from God and that he was something special and that he was the Christ. And so we see him leading her down this path to get this message to her. So there were other things that needed to be addressed in her life. The fact that she's living with a man who's not her husband, well, that probably needs to be addressed, doesn't it? But not until she learns the facts about the matter of Jesus. Because it really doesn't, if you don't understand who the Savior is, then you're not going to want to do anything about your sin, are you? Okay, verses 27 through 29. And at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then as we read down in verses 39 through 42, we see that because of the word of this woman, others checked out this situation, checked out this Jesus. And they believed after they talked to him that he was the Christ as well. If we'll remember these four things when we're dealing with our friends and neighbors, 
I believe it's going to help us because the master teacher taught us this. Don't prejudge. Don't decide who's going to listen to the gospel and who's not. You've got to start somewhere, so that's fine. But get to Kurt, despite the fact that he's from Illinois. Get to James, in spite of the fact that he's a government worker. I'm, again, I'm, I, he smiled, so I guess I'm okay with Kurt. Don't get sidetracked on every issue. There's a time and a place for talking about things that the person might say that, that aren't accurate. But we need to stick with the point. We can steer the conversation toward the spiritual when we're talking to our friends and neighbors. Jesus gave us a great example of this. He's sitting by a well, and he says, if you knew who it was you were talking to, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Perfect example of how to steer a conversation toward something spiritual. And stick with the facts. For us, that means sticking with what God says on the matter and not what we say. Because what we say really doesn't matter when it all boils down to it. Now, I want to notice one more thing. As you look at what Jesus did, note the progression that she made. He starts out being an old Jew. And I, again, I really am convinced that since this went both ways, this might have very well been, why is it that you, being a Jew, talking to me? And you see later on possible sarcasm as she's talking on. You know, are you greater than our father Jacob? So are you a Jew? A few verses down, a couple of places, she actually calls him sir. Now, I don't, I don't want to make the mistake of believing sir, the translated word sir, means the same kind of respect that we mean it today, perhaps. But still, I believe when it comes from the lips of a Samaritan, it's probably a step up. Then he becomes a prophet. And because of the things he said to her and the way he dealt with her, where did he end up? He's the Christ. And not only does she believe that he's the Christ, but she's so convinced by it that she talks to others about it, and they believe. That's the way it's supposed to work, isn't it? Throughout the, the Bible, and the New Testament in particular, we see that God expects his people to be spreading the good news of the gospel to those around about them. Now, the Great Commission was given specifically to the apostles, although there's a general sense in which when we understand all of these principles in the New Testament, we know that we need to be going into all the world and teaching the gospel as well because God wants everybody in the world to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy, the second chapter, in verse 2, you know, Paul tells them that uh, the things that you've heard from me before many witnesses entrust to commit these to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And so this principle is clearly demonstrated that we need to be teaching others about the Christ. That's what this woman was willing to do based on how Jesus dealt with her and the things that, uh, that he said to her. Well, I hope these things will help us as we try to reach our friends and neighbors. I'm excited about the gospel meeting coming up. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us. You know, it's always a good opportunity to try to invite somebody to services, but this is kind of a special thing that we can go out and, and just really get a little bit of extra energy for and try to invite people. So keep in mind what Jesus did, and maybe that will help us along the way. If you're not a Christian tonight, we want to invite you to act on your belief, if you indeed believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you're willing to confess him before men, and that you're willing to repent and turn away from your sins, and then be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins.
We want to give you that opportunity in just a moment as we stand and sing. For those of us who are Christians, let's go get them. The gospel meeting's coming up. Let's stand and sing the song. <laughs>